Hi, and welcome to Aspect Ratio Projects One-to-One. My name is Jennifer Armetta, and I'm the director of the gallery. Aspect Ratio Projects is a contemporary art gallery located in Chicago. We represent emerging and mid-career conceptual artists from around the world. This is our series of podcasts that we look at as sort of an informal fireside chat with our artists. Time to get personal, have some fun, and learn about art and our artists. I'm happy to be speaking with Alejandro Figueroa Diaz Pereira today. Thank you to Darby Jack Gustafson, our associate intern, for producing this event. Hello, Alejandro. How are you? Hi, Jennifer. Good. It's noon here in LA. Just um, another way, another day. I was talking about working on this uh, new show for uh, June 12th, and um, it's pretty exciting. First solo show, I think it's been three years since my last solo. Oh my gosh, uh, it's yeah. been that long. Wow. It's been, it's been a while. <laughs> so well, you're ready or you're getting ready. Exciting. Yeah, I'm getting ready. I love talking about that when we were, I guess it was a week or two ago. I was asking you, you know, because all artists work in, in different ways. Some have a very conceptual view of their show. Some have a thread that runs through it. And when I asked you that question, like, what would the thread be? You said, it's just all my work. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I told that to another artist and she said, that is where I want to get to, where I just know that my work is my work and it stands on its own and I don't have to have anything else. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, that's funny that, that, that stu- it stuck with you because I, it's, it's been a long process for me, especially coming from Cuba, which is a country that, uh, you know, it's the country I was born in, but yeah. um, most of, not just the arts, actually, anything that, you know, any conversation that people have that becomes public, uh, you know, so it doesn't have to be only the arts, which is a public, you know, a, a medium that becomes public for, for public con- consuming. But it's also like, it happens with almost every conversation that becomes public. Everything gets kind of politicized or has a political nudge to it. Mm, especially in this day and age. <laughs> especially, now, well, and now with, you know, with everything that's going on there, like right now it's, you know, it, it, it's more and more, it, it gets more, it has gotten way more and more hard for people in, in, in my country. The really, struggling there i'm talking about just not not just like you know people from you know like like regular people that are doing the daily daily jobs whatever but like in the case of cuba like artists have a very good position or always had have a very good position uh economically i'm speaking and Hmm. and even now uh even artists nowadays they're, they're, they're very they're really struggling because uh the ways that the country have chosen to um you know, to put laws and to limit the the, the things that they say. Um, like the so censorship? Right now, yeah, it's a lot of censorship. It's, it's a lot of arrests. It's a lot of, uh, there's been beatings even. So all that has gotten public. There's a lot of uh, different news agencies that are sharing the stories. Human Rights Watch has done a couple of mm-hmm. uh, reports about that. But, you know, Cuban, Cuban magazines that are actually not legal from, like the, the, the government doesn't make them legal. Like they don't, they always crack on them because there's people in Cuba who have a blog and they eventually have become this kind of a, a way to share what's going on in there that is not being shared by the official newspaper mm-hmm. of the of right. island. Uh, but anyways, what I'm trying to get here is that there's that and I, I and, and you know, and I, I share, I share 
the feeling for what they're fighting for. Uh, my my fellow, uh, you know, friends and and some people I don't know, but you know, fellow uh, Cuban people. <laughs> uh, I, I totally share the struggle and the struggle that they have is real. It's real hard. But on the same level, um, there is another struggle that I go through, which is with my art. And, and it has to do with trying to liberate the work that I do from an agenda or from a thematic that has to be limited by the place I come from or mm-hmm. by how people perceive me or who I am. Yeah. You want to operate, you want to kind of break through the norms, if you will, like not, no, like no labels, no category, just let the art and how uh, you feel. You know, it has to do, I guess it has to do a little bit with identity. Like I remember okay. I had a talk, I, I, I gave a, an artist talk on, uh, actually it was a, it was a, we were like four people on a panel, but this was during the Latino art now, I think it was called. Oh, Okay. Uh, and you know it was a big event like all these artists came uh tani ruguera was there she talked about her work and in in inigo manglano Valle, for example was in that so there were a series of panels they had throughout a week i think and i had one uh had a panel with four four other artists of my age and i was discussing my work uh which at the time was still very influenced by the politics i had just you know i was like i think third or second year here in, 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 in America, still was very, very much influenced by um, my experiences in Cuba. What was interesting though, was like at the end of the panel, somebody, I don't want to say names, but somebody, a friend of mine actually asked, well, he's a friend, he wasn't a friend of mine back then, but we became friends after that talk. <laughs> <laughs> he asked me about identity and like why, because he's from Mexico and he said like, well, why you don't talk about identity and like, the fact that, uh, you know, being from from a country like Cuba, from, you know, a minority in America, why don't you express that in, in the way you talk about the work? Or why do you talk about identity? And it, it struck me because nobody had asked me that question so directly like that. And I was like, you know, <laughs> actually, I always felt that the talk about identity is very limiting. And it's kind of like force upon us, the, the people from pe- pe- people people who come from a minority background or they come from um, a culture that is perceived as exotic. I mean, Cuba is not exotic for me at all right. I'm from there. And I said, you know, I feel that that is kind of, a, it's like the, the remnants that are left of culture for us. Oh, we have this niche, this little space where we can talk, which is identity. And I don't, I don't, why? Why we have to be limited by that? Why can we just expand from, from, why we have to, you know, why we have to like just be okay and like take that and be like, all right, I'm just gonna talk about identity because that's what people expect from me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> um, so part of that attempt to like, challenge myself by looking for different materials or mm-hmm. um, a new thematic or new mediums, even though a lot of times they're, they're, they come from my personal experience, but on the way I'm always trying to abstract the thematic or, mm-hmm. or just um, work with a variety of things. Uh, that way I feel that I'm less defined. So it sounds, I mean, obviously growing up in Cuba, those experiences would shape you. But yeah. it sounds like if I just can put it into layperson's terms, so you, but you don't want it to define you. 
Um, it'll always be a part of you, but you want to be able to express yourself and, you know, um, speak about other things in your work or through your work that aren't just based on growing yeah. up in Cuba. Yeah, especially <laughs> because in, in the world today, I feel especially we have like, you know, there is all the talk about cultural appropriation and all that. Mm-hmm. And I feel that um, part of that is good. And then there's a, a positive side to that. But then there is a negative side, which is I feel the, the limiting element of that in which well, why, why are we not allowed to explore different cultures? And especially like in my case, this is something that yesterday I got this, um, uh, my, my uh, DNA uh, analysis. Like I sent that to- um, Oh, like 23andMe or whatever? Yeah, or is that yeah. what it is? Yeah. And I, yeah, and I got my ancestry and I was like, wow. Like I have people, except from Russia actually, which is funny. Because, <laughs> you know, everybody associates Cubans and Russians because- Right, you know, communism and all that, but actually, I have nothing from the Russians. <laughs> my DNA, just maybe a little bit from really, really like the east side of of Russia. Okay. Um, but that's like almost like a zero point zero something percent. That's not not, not even defined. Uh, <laughs> I, but I have from everywhere else. Really? Uh, yeah, like, yeah, Spanish, Portuguese, Greek, Egyptian. Which I was like, what Egyptian? <laughs> um, Native American, or you know, probably Central American. Who knows? Like that's a whole. You know, they 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 basically give you like different traits from different places that might match that. And then African too, like I have Senegalese, Ghana, and yeah, places that I was like, wow, okay, Morocco, it's there too. Oh so my gosh, from Morocco, Asia, from <laughs> specifically, they think specifically from um, Philippines, Thailand, Myanmar. Growing up, you know, I always thought, oh, if you're French, you're all French. If you're Cuban, you're all, you know, it's like overly yeah. simplified. Okay. Um, so it's actually very interesting to hear that you have all of those different elements to your ancestry. Exactly. You must and have had a really busy family. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, they give you kind of like a so-and-so family tree. It's not really like they don't have everybody, right? But they kind right. of give you like what would it be like people who are already in the in their system um, that are related to me and like how the, the family tree might relate to them. Mm-hmm. And so the people that, that make what is my ancestors, they've just been traveling around forever, going from place to place, you know? Like, mm-hmm. And even now, myself, I'm in a different country than the country I was born in. So I guess it's going to keep going that way. Right. Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my gosh. So wait, let's circle back to that. What, mm-hmm. how and when and why, I guess, what made you come over to the States? Well, I mean, there are different reasons. Like the first one is I met my wife, my who yeah. Carol Lewis, who's my wife today. Who's lovely. And, yeah. <laughs> and um, we met in Cuba. Uh, that was in 2012 when we met. Okay. Then we actually we be, we became partners for like for real, real on 2014. And well, around that time, like um, she came a couple times, and then I, I came to America, and that's when we officially were like, okay, we're gonna be, we're gonna be together for a while. Um, <laughs> for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I came here for a visit, actually, just to visit her, and stay with her, and actually, I, uh, the way that we figured it out, because it was back then and still today, it's really hard to uh, just travel outside of Cuba. Right. Um, and so what we figured was like, okay, I'm gonna, since I'm an artist, I knew that that 
uh, as an artist, I could travel if I had some show or some event. They allowed that. Okay. And so um, uh, we decided to, well, I decided to apply to a couple of residencies and she got me a, a little gig uh, on Harold Washington University with Alberto Aguilar, which mm -hmm. is great. I love, I love his crazy performances and his work. Uh, right. We became really good friends after that. And I came for that and I stayed here for four months with her. Did a residency at Acre and okay. uh, that workshop at Harold Washington. And there was another, I uh, can't remember, it's been a while, but there was like another thing that I, I was doing also. Um, okay. But anyways, I, I came back, I went back to Cuba after those four months. And I uh, just, you know, I, I, I went back and I was just like saddened by, I guess it has to do with like, since I was a kid, I was always watching, I, I love watching documentaries. Mm -hmm. um, and my stepfather is also like that. Like he's always watching documentaries about architecture and, and design and engineering. He, he studied electrical engineer. He actually went to Moscow to, to work on like a nuclear reactor and learn how to. How oh my to, gosh. Yeah, how to work on one. Because back then they were building the first nuclear reactor in Cuba, which is today is abandoned. It's like a whole structure that is there, but it's, it's actually completely abandoned. But anyway, from him, I, I, I also got influenced to like, to always, and I, I guess I was always very curious to learn from all over the world. And when I came to America, I realized that this, this, the, the freedom of, of, of being in a place that allows you to travel anywhere you want, as long as you do it legally, and that, you know, lets you, you know, build your world around whatever you want, you know, doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't limit you if you have a certain opinion. I realized how crucial that was for the personal development of an individual. Mm -hmm. So when I, going back to Cuba, I, I was just sad and I was like, wow, there is, there is no way that by me staying here, I'll be able to grow in the way I want to grow. I don't want to say just to grow by itself because I mean, pe different people have different ideas of what growth is and True. development and that. So I just, in my personal view, I was like, okay, I, I feel that what I want to achieve in my life, I won't be able to achieve it if I stay here. And, and that made the decision that, so it wasn't, it was like, I had, you know, I had a, 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 a love partner and I also, so I have a reason in, in, in my, in my love with Kara, but I also was like, love for my freedom I want that right. so yeah. we got both you got both <laughs> I have both and I was like okay I guess this is this is it I I made my decision because before then that before that I wasn't I still wasn't sure and well you came to the states for I mean what America is supposed to be known for right I yeah freedom yeah and, and then uh, you know when I when I finally moved um decided to move fully um all the other things started to become obvious like how it's not exactly as they painted either so right. <laughs> that's going to be a whole other subject right that's another story but you know it's like you know it's, you know, I, I always think well you know it's fine i mean and, and no worries you're not going to go anywhere that is going to be perfect you have to worry with what you have and i feel like as long as you have your freedom um and you're not limited by your context mm -hmm. that that's the place you should be and so then was Kara in Chicago? Yeah, she was living okay. in Chicago by then. She was living in Chicago. So you came to Chicago and yeah. you were fortunate enough to get a residency at Chicago Artist Coalition. 
which is an yeah. amazing thing. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And that your project is super interesting. I love the project that you did. Um, yeah, you're talking about, well, I actually did two shows in, in, in Chicago Artists Coalition because I stayed there. Oh. So you, the residency lasts a year. And during that year, you have a studio space. And at the same time, you, you have a show, a solo show that different, you know, different times of the, of that year. So some people have it earlier on in the residency, some people have it later. And it was great. I mean, the first thing was like, just amazing to have, you know, ha access to a space on a new country where I was able to um, make my work. Um, because that, that, that was definitely one of my biggest concerns coming from, you know, coming to a new country was like, well, I, I, I've heard so many stories of people who've moved, not just to America, but, you know, many different countries in the world, especially from Cuba, and they had to do, you know, work as a taxi driver, even though they were doctors or things like that. Right. They mm -hmm. had to do jobs that had nothing to do or didn't line up with what they wanted to do in their life. And I was lucky enough that I was able to get this residency for a year. And almost by the end of it, I did my solo show, um, which back then Obama had just opened the relationships with Cuba for the first time in, you know, ever. And they were doing, they were trying to do economical, you know, reestablish economical relationships and all that. Uh, and if you remember, like even uh, Chanel had a had a show, a uh, fashion show in Cuba. It was mm -hmm. kind of it was kind of crazy time. Right. And they started building, like, they still, those buildings are half constructed. Uh, if you go to Cuba today, like, they started building all these, like, huge um, glass and steel buildings that we've never seen in, in Cuba. Like, you know, really modern architectures. So companies have these partnerships with, but on the on the political level, like, you know, there were, things stayed the same, or, or I don't want to say political level, mostly, like, on a social on, on a social and human rights level, actually, things kind of like were the same. Like they didn't want to really change much of that. I have many people ask me about what I thought and I didn't know what to say because on one hand, I, I, I saw the, the positive of, of America reestablishing a relationship with, with a country that was kind of like stuck in a certain period of time for decades right. um, and, and the need for for any place in the world to to you know have that new experience and, and from that learn and be able to move forward um, but on the same level you know I was just like wow okay they they just they just want to keep people the same way that they were before that's just going to be a mess it's almost like progress for sure but kind of I don't want to say only on the surface, but very visual progress, I should say, to the rest of the world. But what was yeah. remaining back at home yeah. really wasn't that much different, except for half-built glass buildings. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, yeah, you can have progress if you're just giving the, the you know, if you're just giving the deal to an, uh, a foreign company and you're not really focusing on the progress of the people of mm -hmm. your Right, so exactly. I had that double uh, opinion about it. It was very hard for me to like just explain that to to people. Most mostly, everybody wanted to have a direct, like a specific direct opinion of one side or the other side. And I guess it wasn't really that I wanted to talk about that per se, but that definitely influenced 
um, <laughs> the work that I did in which I decided to build this kind of a fake wall uh, on okay. the gallery. It was like the the wall on top of, of the wall that was already existing on the space. And that was separated from the original wall of the space about this, the, the space inside that, you know, the, the fake wall and the real wall was about the size of, or the width of my uh, shoulders. So the size of my body uh, or the width of my body. It was that um, tight? I didn't yeah, realize it was, it was that small. I knew it was small, but not that you're small. I wanted to make it so if you have been in that space before, um, you could sense that there was something different, but I didn't want it to be obvious. So I didn't mm -hmm. want it just to like make the space way smaller by building, you know, a whole house inside of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it was obvious. <laughs> I wanted to be very subtle. And that that's why I decided, well, the, the, the most subtle I can make it is just the width of my shoulders. That was the space that I had inside. It, were, it was actually a corner. So two walls, one, one long wall and then the short wall at the end of the space. Mm -hmm. I... Um, I added the vent because the space already had um, the space at Chicago Circulation already had uh, vents on the floor, and I added this vent through which I was able to go in, get inside the the this this cramped space. So it was like this little door uh, with hinges uh, that looked like a vent. And uh, the, well, basically the the work was for me to stay inside that space for the the time that the duration of the show, which was three weeks. Um, but also the most important thing was not to be seen or to communicate or talk to anybody during that time. Kind of like disappear. Right. That idea was kind of like just disappear. Uh, and the title of the piece was uh, in, the in the Absence of a Body. So I knew that my presence itself wasn't going to be completely absent because, and that was part of it, like people would come inside the space and they will feel that I was there. So you could, you know, mm -hmm. if you stay for a little bit, for a little bit, you you might hear me sneeze or or cough, right? Or walk around, or, you know, any movement you just you just hear it. So it was kind of like a subtle presence that there was somebody there that you couldn't see it. It was kind of interesting because some people will come into the space <clears throat> wanting to talk to me, ask me questions about the show, even like sometimes they will come and be like, hey. So what is this piece about? And, <laughs> and I wasn't talking. So I, was, I would never respond to them. So they would be even more frustrated or like, they'll, they'll be like, I don't know what, what this is about. Or, and right. I kind of like wanted to, wanted to uh, get that, that feeling of, of um, ambiguity in the, in, you know, in the, in, in the people who were coming to visit the show. So there was no explanation of what was going on in that space whatsoever. They just walked in and they were in basically a white-walled small gallery space and they were left to their own devices to figure out what was going well, on. <laughs> no, I mean there were there was a little there was a little um text about the exhibition that that did said it, it said that I was inside this wall, inside the wall. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but not to be seen or talked to. Um but in, there was also two more works in the show. And one of them is, is called The Silence is Overrated. And that was a microphone. Uh, it was kind of like, I like to call it a modular sculpture because actually it's a, modu a modular self-destructive sculpture. 
Um, it's supposed to be, so it's, it's this motor um, of a fan, of an electric fan, of mm-hmm. those oscillating fans that have the oscillating mechanism. Yes. Uh, but it's from 1920s. So I, I chose a fan from that time period, not just because, I mean, the, the title of the piece refers directly to uh, Joseph Boyce. There is an artwork of Joseph Boyce called The Silence of Marcel Duchamp is Overrated. And he did it in response to, you know, the time that in which Duchamp was, well, they said that he was, or he said that he wasn't making anything, that he stopped making art uh, on purpose. And he was just going to play chess. You know, and they found out later that wasn't actually that. He was actually working on the Etan Donet the whole time. But, but back then, um, Joe, Joseph Boyce did this work about the silence of Duchamp. So about the time that he didn't make art. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of like a critique of that position, because for him, artists have the responsibility to always uh, be responding to their time by making artworks to kind of like, uh, I mean, you know, he saw himself as a, as a shaman or a, somebody mm-hmm. who was able to free people through art. And he probably saw Duchamp the same way. And he thought that by him not working was kind of like quitting. Mm-hmm. So I kind of felt compelled by that. You know, like sometimes you just don't have something to say about the time that you're in. Um, or this thing that you want to say, you can say it at that time. Or maybe you need more time to process it. So things are not, you know, written in stone like this. So, and also like positions about your your period of time, positions about, you know, what is supposed to be said today in this moment, you know, they, they always can be perceived wrong. So the work was this microphone attached to a broomstick, attached to a little piece of wood, attached to a this motor, to this the oscillated the oscillatory mechanism of the motor. The fan was a, was one of the, you know it was from 1920, so it was cast and iron. It was it's a heavy piece of uh, motor, and that whole thing is attached to a wall. And then it has the microphone is connected to a loudspeaker. So every time that the so the oscillatory mechanism makes the broom uh, move like a pendulum, and that makes the microphone hit the wall where okay. the pieces installed. So it's slowly hitting the wall, uh, but very, very subtle. And then if you didn't have the speaker, you would not hear much. But with the speaker, it, the sound becomes very, very amplified. Like somebody is you know, hitting something or, or like a drum, kind of hearing mm-hmm. something from like boom, boom, boom. Um, and at the same time, it slowly chips at the wall. So even though it's soft, uh, soft uh, hits to the wall, Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though the microphone is softer than than the wall, because it's the metal of, of and the and the texture of the of the microphone itself, it slowly starts to like sand or or chip away um, on on the area where it's hitting it. Mm-hmm. So, so it carves it. Um, so that's what I mean by self-destructive. This is, the the module part is that I I made a drawing or um, set like one of those set of instructions that you receive from mm-hmm. like if you buy a uh, <laughs> furniture in Ikea or something you get right. the, the manual to make to put it together so I made something like this a manual to put the piece together so like anybody can actually make that work if they have that document and they just buy the the elements and then the self-destructive part is that you know as the piece stays on there are three 
yeah, it has three things that can happen, three courses of action. So one is that the motor, because it's an old motor and it's constantly working, um, will break, which actually happened a couple of mm -hmm. times. Like the, the motor will just stop for a second and then you just give it a kick and it keep going. Um, <laughs> yeah, and some, it happened in two occasions. And then the other uh, outcome was the wall might just, if you know if the piece keeps going there forever, eternally, the microphone might be able to open a, a complete hole in the wall, carving, you know, a complete hole in the wall, but that mm -hmm. would render the piece silent. So the, 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 the first purpose of the piece, which was to make this loud drum sound, it would, it would end. Right. And, and the third outcome was, well, the microphone could also break and it would also render it silent. Mm -hmm. So there were three outcomes for the piece to stop functioning independent dependent of how long you'll keep it running so it should have been programmed to run for three weeks and then free you from the wall the other wall <laughs> <laughs> i mean the fact that you stayed in there for three weeks is amazing what was the hardest part about that going to the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> see i said we were going to get personal on these things <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I mean, the whole thing, you know, the whole, the whole point of the work was not to be seen and, yeah. and not to be interacted with. So I, I really, I had to, I, I had to really force myself to focus on that and not freaking out. Um, yeah. Especially throughout the day, the nights were cool, you know, were quiet and calm, but especially throughout the day. Uh, so I did a lot of I would exercise inside of there sometimes when there was nobody. Yeah, I didn't want I didn't want people hear me exercise. But in the morning, early on, before the the show opened uh, to public, I would exercise. I would do some meditation throughout the day too. And I would think you'd have to. I would. I mean, not talking to people, not interacting. I mean, that goes against like our human nature. <laughs> I wrote poetry in my head, which wasn't very good. After I came out of, I realized. <laughs> But, you know, they said that, you know, when you are, when you are in a situation like that, uh, away from the rest of the world, you kind of like start going crazy. I didn't go crazy, but uh, <laughs> and my poetry wasn't very good. <laughs> are you sure you didn't go crazy? No. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. No, um, you did not. <laughs> but I have a, I mean, you were in your own, I mean, you were in a self-imposed quarantine, which yeah. we've all been through, not to that degree, clearly, yeah. but um in the past year of being cut off and the feeling of that. And then you had your own quarantine moment of life imitating art. Yeah, no, I mean, when the quarantine started, I thought, I just thought, wow, again? Right. <laughs> Didn't I do this already? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but I, I kind of felt, you know, the, to, to be, you know, to be blunt, like the thing is, there is nothing like forced quarantine. And I'm not talking about, you know, the quarantine we have today is, I mean, it, it is enforced because we have a problem with the virus. Right. But, but we are choosing to stay inside, you know, mm -hmm. even though it's enforced, we're choosing to stay inside. And it's in our houses, of course. So, so there's some certain range of freedom we have. So what I'm talking about by forced quarantine, I'm talking about like, you know, if you, if you are a prisoner, for example, like mm -hmm. a real um right. you're you're depending on somebody else's wishes uh in that case so mm -hmm. that that would be the worst and then the second would be you know 
something like what I did, which is a very limited space with very little range of motion and, and movement and communication with the external world. Right. But that's self-imposed. That was, that was the thing that I would focus on throughout the whole mm-hmm. time I was in there. This is something I chose. And it's something I chose that I have complete freedom and over it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's my own language, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say. It's like, it, it, it is my own language. And part of it was a lot about building a new language. And it happened actually. Mm-hmm. At one point there was a group of two visitors that came into, I mean, there, there were many different anecdotes I can tell you, but I don't want to extend myself. But um, like I, I received letters from people I didn't know that oh, were wow. like sharing. They were like, oh, I, I, I feel how you're going, what are you going through right now? And I, I, I'm with you. And I keep those. I have all those letters. Wow. Um, from places like, and it, you know, it was crazy. That was my first year in America. And all of a sudden I'm getting letters from people in Texas, people in, in like, you know, other, other states that I, I'm like, wow, okay. And I, I didn't know those people. And most of the letters I read after I left. Uh, That's you know, incredible. I, I finished the piece because I wasn't receiving mail. Through right. the, through the <laughs> there was no mail slot. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but anyway, there were two, two visitors who came to the show and they slide a paper, a little note through the vent and they were just sharing like what they thought the work was about and how it made them feel mm-hmm. and then they stayed for a little while and then it was interesting because they didn't try to talk to me uh with words but they started touching the wall or like you know interacting with the wall itself and i was on the other wow. side and i could hear them um like i could hear the hands and the gestures and so i started doing the same and like responding to them um, so like rubbing my hand against the wall will make a sound, but if I would rub my nails against the wall, it would make a different sound. So right. we did that for a little bit and it was kind of like this new way of communication that was just based on abstract sounds. Right. Very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after that, I tried to do that again. Uh, I actually did it with Alberto's children. They came one time to, to the show and they started running around and... <laughs> I kind of did the same inside the wall without talking to them, but it, right, but communicating. Like this, the communication was abstract, and that mm-hmm. that led to me to think more in abstract terms, which is, I guess, you know, the point in which I am today. My work has has become influenced by that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, How did that make you feel? I mean, did it did it make you? I mean, was it a relief that you were able to communicate with someone at a time being so? Oh my God! Yes. I mean, you must have been ecstatic. (laughs) Well, especially because, as I said, I mean, I I wasn't there for my own terms. Where I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm not going to communicate with anybody. I'm not going to be seen or see anybody. And that's what I did during the three weeks. But I was open to explore another way of communicating that wasn't the ones that we used to. And that was it. And I was like, this is it. This is a way of communicating with somebody. Even like if you were in prison, for example, not in those same conditions, not able to talk or communicate in any way with somebody, you still can express feelings through abstract sound. Well, and they initiated it, not you. They did, yes. You know, instead of you reaching out, being so desperate for communication or interaction or connection, they actually initiated it. So that's... Yeah. I wonder if it was like kind of developed. It was kind of like, well, they started just touching the wall and then I started touching the wall too. And then it kind of just developed. 
into input output. Yeah, like they would, you know, they will make a sound and they'll repeat the sound and then we started like, yeah, it, it's like talking. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I mean, it is. Yeah, absolutely. I did not know that part of, of the project. That's, uh, I just think that's, I don't know what the word is for. That's amazing that people, just that innate need for interaction and maybe they recognized it. You know, maybe that's what made them touch the wall first. Like he's been in there. We don't know, maybe they didn't even know how long for how long you'd been in there for, but yeah, just that need for connection or, or maybe it's, it was exploration, you know, to see what, what you would do, but yeah. it elicited a response, which is fascinating. I feel yeah. like, I mean, the, the, the world, you know, in the situation that we are today, we, we also found different ways of communicating. I mean, Zoom is one of them, you know, it's not in person. It's not the direct way. Technology right. is the one, you know, making that possible. But I feel that we also gotten more used to, um, have people that we love um, that we don't see mm-hmm. uh, for a while. Um, yeah, and, and 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 it's precisely because we love them that we we might not see them. Like I have my mother; I haven't seen her in a long time, and it's because she's very fragile. She lives in Miami right now, but okay, she's, you know she's older than me, and she's very her health is very fragile. So I I'm 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 worried that if by seeing her, I might her in risk like if i go and mm-hmm. travel like I, I of course i call i mean you know, we, we talk on the phone all the time but what i'm trying to say is like it's not the same than going and you know spending time with them and no. i feel like this time has made us like have to rethink how we communicate with people that we love precisely mm-hmm. because we love them exactly well you you i mean you think a lot about those things you're heavily influenced by history and science um how is it just your innate curiosity that leads you? Like, I'm wondering if what's going to happen with 23andMe. Like, are you going to explore something? I don't know. <laughs> right now, I, want to, I just, I'm, I'm, you know, you're right. You're totally right. I'm a very curious person. So right now, I might just keep, you know, deepening the research of what I, well, what they send me and then what mm-hmm. I can gather from that. Like, one of the things is I, and I knew this already. I have a great grandpa from uh, Canary Islands uh, from mm-hmm. Spain. And this is somebody that left my family, you know, my, my great grandma. We had, we don't know anything from that side of the family, basically. Okay. So um, who knows? It might make me travel to Canary Islands. Right. <laughs> Which um, wouldn't be bad. Or, or just like explore more the cultures of all these other places that I have, you know, DNA relation to. One thing that became very interesting is I'm always been in love with a lot of the things that come from those places that I, I share my DNA with. I love the Egyptian culture and the, especially the when it comes to technology, like I, the fact that they were the first civilization that came up with a, a chemical color for blue, mm-hmm. uh, a chemical composition to make blue. In Africa, I love the, the, the music and the, the African culture. And I mean, in Cuba, we, that, that, you know, it's more obvious that I would also be influenced by that in a way, because that just, that's, you know, it's a big part of, of Cuba. I found out that I have a little bit of Greek or Balkan in my DNA as well, which is like, huh, interesting, because I've always been deeply in love with like the Greeks and the, the philosophy and the teachings of the Greeks. Does that mean that I'm going to do something with genetics? Who knows? Who knows? That, that I'm just going to explore the cultures? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. those are just things that become new areas for, for one to expand upon. And not for this show though. No, no. I was gonna say, I learned so much from you just talking to you about all of these 
various things that you're curious about or exploring. And I mean, that's such a huge part of your work. I mean, you work in so many different ways and I mean, I am more familiar with your work than others, but I can definitely see a thread through it no matter what medium you're working in, you know, and there's definitely history and science and exploration and, you know, maybe pushing some boundaries here and there. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that's what makes it all really interesting. So I wanted to ask you one other question. Oh, Oh, I sort of hinted at this earlier. We've got a little bit of time left here. And when I was talking about life imitating art. Talking about the time that I got locked into a closet. Yes. <laughs> it's just so ironic that you accidentally yeah. got locked into a closet in real life. <laughs> it's crazy that I, um, you know, I always had a weird relationship with doors. Um, right. I, I don't know why. They, I either have a problem opening them or they lock on me. I don't know. It's just... And I think that has some meaning that I have to find. I don't know what it means, but I, I think that there's something about that. It's funny because I always, I keep coming up with ideas to make an artwork with doors and I don't make it because I'm not sure if that's a good thing to do. <laughs> you know? It could, like, it could be dangerous for you physically. Maybe that could be very dangerous. <laughs> oh, maybe I shouldn't respond to that. Um, right. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it happened in my house. I was, I, I went into a closet to meditate. And I think that I was just trying to reassemble uh, or like, you know, reproduce the same kind of uh, experience that I had um, doing that, that piece in Chicago Exposition, the, the performance. And I went into the, inside the closet to, for, and I was like, okay, I'm going to stay here, which is, you know, it, it's kind of like self, you know, the, what is it called? The um, sensory deprivation, like a sensory mm -hmm. deprivation tank, basically. I mean, yeah, where it's dark and quiet yeah. and close the door, there is no light coming in and there was nobody in the house. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna stay here for a couple of, you know, maybe a couple of minutes or maybe even an hour if, if, if I have to. So what happened was that I, I didn't know this, but that closet doesn't open from inside. So I have closed, <laughs> I have closed, I have basically locked myself in. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there. I was there for like 20 minutes, just meditating, and then I was like, "Okay, I'm I'm ready to go outside." <laughs> oh no! And it was funny because I was very. I did it for you know this to get to this meditative space, and I I became very relaxed in there, and then I couldn't go out. Oh, no. it, I became very very um anxious. Well, I mean, as you can imagine, I was right. Like, I think I'm going to die here. And my wife wasn't. You know, there was nobody in the house. She was at work. Um, and I was like, okay, she's not going to come for maybe another two hours. So if I don't get out of here, I might. And that's the other thing. Like the closet is a, is a small space. It doesn't have a vent or anything inside there. So there's no air coming in except for the little, little, um, you know, line of light that was coming from in, under the door. Right. Yeah. Uh, the crack so at the bottom. The crack at the bottom of the door. Thankfully, because some doors don't even have that. Some some doors have doors, right. they, they, they lock completely. But yeah, I was like, okay, I might die here. I first freaked out and then I was able to come to a complete relax, to, to a point of relaxation because I was like, okay, this doesn't work by just freaking out and I'm actually just using more oxygen by just stressing myself. Right. So I started breathing slowly and then I relaxed my body and I thought, Again, about actually, I thought about that the, the experience of doing that the the, the work uh, that that piece uh, of the body, 
And mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I was able to go through that. I can go through two hours inside a closet, it's fine. So what I did <clears throat> is that I, I kneel on the floor and I had to, there's not much space in the, in the closet. So I had to like really twist my body in a position that was comfortable. Right. Um, so that my head will be flat against the floor and my nose would be, you know, almost not sticking out because, you know, my, my, my nose is not so thin. Um, but, but, like <laughs> but very, close very, to the air. Very close <laughs> to the air. And so I, yeah. So that's how I was able to breathe oxygen through that right. little crack. So I was just there for two hours like this. And then and Kara rescued Kara, you. Yeah, Kara came back and she was like, Allie. And I was like, oh God, help me. I'm inside here. I mean, <laughs> when would you ever think, thank goodness I locked myself in a tiny space for three weeks to prepare me for this yeah. situation? I was. <laughs> the chances. I don't know if the, my life is going to keep throwing me situations like this. <laughs> Well, we're going to carefully plan your next project. And so, you know, maybe we can see like what could could occur down the line afterwards. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my, oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Alejandro. Yeah. It was so fun to talk to you. Again, I learned so much. Um, so everyone, please stay tuned. We Alejandro has his show coming up with us on July 12th through August 17th. And please be sure to, to rate our podcast and subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to know more about Alejandro and Aspect Ratio Projects, please visit our website. And you can subscribe to our newsletter as well to receive up-to-date information on our artist shows and projects. Thanks again.